This fall, we've been in a series called Encounters with Jesus. If you've been following along, you know that just a couple of weeks ago, we were in John chapter 3, when a man named Nicodemus had an encounter with Jesus in the middle of the night. Last week in John chapter 4, the woman at the well had an encounter with Jesus in the middle of the day. Well, today we get to John chapter 5. It's that famous story where the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda has an encounter with Jesus. But as I was studying John chapter 5 in order to preach to you tonight, I realized there's more than one encounter with Jesus in this story. Fully half of the story, if you were paying attention, was devoted to the religious authorities and how they encountered Jesus. We know about the man who was healed. He encountered Jesus, obviously, but also did the religious authorities. And those two groups of people encountered Jesus in very different ways. In fact, when I was reading this, I realized that throughout the Gospels, there really are two different kinds of people who encounter Jesus. There are religious people, and there are desperate people. It's really just those two kinds of people who have encounters with Jesus in the Gospels, religious people and desperate people. And religious people often are threatened by Jesus, and they ultimately want to get rid of him. Desperate people, on the other hand, are set free by Jesus, and they ultimately want to praise his name. So let's look at this story tonight to see how these two kinds of people encounter Jesus. We're first going to look at the religious people. Now, what do I mean when I say religious? Well, I have to give you a little bit of historical background. I want to give you just a little bit of history here before we dive into the verses on the screen, because there's an important historical detail that if we know it, we can really unlock this scripture. And it's this, that by the time Jesus arrived on the scene in Jerusalem, there was something called the oral tradition. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time They knew what the written law was, the law of Moses, the Torah, but they had also added on top of that law an oral tradition. They'd made up all kinds of new laws, new rules, new regulations that were not in the Bible, but that were communicated orally throughout Jerusalem and Israel. And for the Sabbath law alone, they had added 39 rules on top of the one rule of Sabbath. They knew what the one rule of Sabbath was. It was from the Ten Commandments. You probably know it as well. For six days you shall do all your labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest from your labor and, uh, from your labor and make the day holy unto the Lord, because even God rested on the seventh day. They knew that that's what it said in the Bible, but they had added 39 additional rules on top of that one rule. They liked to follow. It was like a checkbox list. They liked to know who was measuring up and who was not. Who was following all 39? By the way, we know what those 39 rules are. We have historical record of them to this day. Let me just read you a couple of them. They're interesting. They're very specific. You may not write two or more letters on a page. You may not erase two or more letters on a page. No building, no demolishing. No extinguishing a fire, no kindling a fire. And the 39th rule is very important for us to know. The 39th rule is you may not uh, uh, travel any distance in public while carrying an object. 
You may not travel any distance in public while carrying an object. Remember that as we go back into this story. That was the 39th rule that the Pharisees had invented. They had added on to the Sabbath law. Now let's read verses 6 through 9 now that we know that historical background. It says this. When Jesus saw that man, the paralyzed man, lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. See, they had believed that an angel would stir the water and the first person in would be healed. Jesus said to that man, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And what did he do? At once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. Now, I wish that the Bible had sound effects. Because if it did, this next line would go like this. Now that day was the Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun! <laughs> he took up his bed. He walked in a public space carrying an object, breaking the 39th rule that the Pharisees had established on top of the biblical law. Jesus came that day to heal this man, but he also came to get the attention of the Pharisees. In some sense, I think he came to pick a fight with them. This is very specific. It's very obvious to me that he was trying to get their attention. He was healing the physical paralysis of this man, but he was also exposing the spiritual paralysis of the Pharisees. They wanted to know who measured up and who didn't, and Jesus came and healed the man who clearly did not measure up. When I was young, I grew up in a town called Holland, Michigan. Anyone ever been to Holland, Michigan? A couple people here. Okay. It's quite a churched town. And I went to the Christian school, K through 12. And I lived just a couple of blocks from the school. And when you walked uh, over to my school, you would see there were this beautiful green fields out there next to the school. And there was a scoreboard, you know, for sports. But above the scoreboard was another sign, even higher up with big block letters, three big words, and it said, no Sunday playing. Just in case anybody got the bright idea, they were going to have some fun on Sunday. No, no, no. <laughs> Not under that sign. <laughs> and as I grew a bit older and I started learning more about the Bible, I began to be a little bit confused because I knew that in the Ten Commandments it said, you shall not work on Sunday, but I didn't see anywhere in my Bible where it said, you shall not play on Sunday, on the Sabbath. And sometimes I had little secret fantasies. What if Jesus actually showed up at my school? I pictured him one time just kind of climbing the pole and taking the sign down. But then my school administrators coming out there saying, you can't take that down and being all upset with him. But him saying, look, I didn't make this law. You did. I'm try trying to show you it a little bit of what Jesus was doing when he tells this man after healing him to take up his bed and walk. Now just think about this for a second. These Pharisees had just witnessed an astonishing miracle. The man had been paralyzed for 38 years, and suddenly he was walking around. How amazing is that? Yet, all they could see was the fact that he broke their 39th rule. They were blinded to the miracle, to the astonishing, spectacular miracle that Jesus had done. Now, maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, man, those Pharisees were nuts. I am so glad I have nothing in common 
with the Pharisees. Maybe you're thinking, they were so hyper-obsessed with the Sabbath, I can easily just blow the Sabbath off if there's a good football game on. Ooh, that one cut a little close. I saw some <laughs> guilty looks on faces there. So maybe they're not, oh, they're at home. You can text them. So maybe you're thinking you're off the hook because the Pharisees don't seem anything like us. But here's what I want to suggest to us tonight. The Pharisees made two errors that I think many of us make, the exact same ones. Number one, they really just wanted to do religion. They wanted to do the Bible on their own terms. They knew what it said in the Bible. They knew what the Sabbath law was. But I think that they found the actual Sabbath law much harder to observe than their 39 checkboxes. At least with the 39 checkboxes, you knew where you stood. You could go to God and say, look, God, I measure up. I did all 39. I didn't ignite any fires today. I didn't put out any fires today. I didn't walk in public carrying an object. But the real law of the Sabbath is actually much harder spiritually, isn't it? The Sabbath is to stop your working. The Sabbath is 24 hours long. That's one full rotation of the earth on its axis. It's a way of us stopping. We run around for six days a week pretending like we make the world go round. But on the seventh day, we stop from our work and we realize that it's God who makes the world go round. That's harder to observe, isn't it? To say, there is a God and I'm not him. It's easier to say, I've done these 39 things. I know where I stand. We want to do religion on our own terms. And God save us because if they wanted to do religion on their own terms and they added to the law and Jesus was upset with them, how much more upset is he when we want to do religion on our own terms and we blow off half of the Bible? God have mercy. Well, the second thing that the Pharisees were doing that I think we have in common with them is that they wanted to know who measured up with God. They wanted to know who measured up with each other. Now, they had these 39 rules for the Sabbath, and we probably don't follow those. I know most of us in this room, all of us, but we might have our own list that we walked around with, knowing if we follow all those things, we might measure up with our social circles. Or even worse, we might have a list with God, and we think, hey, God, look at all the things I've been doing for you. Look at all the things, look at all the ways that I donate my time or my money, or look at the kids that I'm raising. Aren't you impressed, God? You see, the mistake that the Pharisees were making, they knew that the law, if you obeyed it, you'd receive blessing. If you disobeyed it, you'd receive curse. And so they started believing that God existed to reward them for their worthiness. I'm worthy, God. I've checked all the boxes. Now where's my blessing? But the reality is Jesus did not come to reward the worthy. He came to rescue the unworthy. Desperate people, that's the second category I want us to look at tonight. Desperate people are set free by Jesus. Religious people are threatened by him. Desperate people are set free by him. Let's look at verses uh, two through five here to look at the desperation of this man. There was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. Now I'm gonna stop a couple of times and unpack a couple of these words. In Aramaic called Bethesda. Bethesda simply means house of mercy, Bethesda. As the house of mercy. God is showing us through his word what it's like in his house of mercy, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids. Let's stop right there. Invalids. Invalid. 
You see what society had determined about these people. Now, interestingly, the pool of Bethesda, uh, in 1969, some archaeologists uncovered it. They finally found the exact description of what's described here. And it's, interestingly, right next to the temple. It's literally on the margin of the temple. The temple was the place for all those who are worthy. They could say that they followed all 39 rules. They belonged in God's presence in the temple. But this pool of Bethesda was right next to that for those who didn't belong in there for whatever reason. They were blind. They were lame. They were invalid. Society had said, you're not valid enough. You have to go to this place where you seek healing on your own. Just think about that. They were outside of the border. Blind, lame, and paralyzed. Keep going, John. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. The average lifespan of a man in Jesus' time was 37 years. What John, the gospel writer, is trying to show us is that this was a totally, completely invalidated existence. This man had been an invalid longer than most people were alive. The desperation of this man could not be more clear. Now, what happens in the next few verses is also very interesting. Jesus arrives on the scene. He finds this man. He heals the man. The man doesn't even know it was Jesus. When Jesus first approaches him and says, do you want to be healed? He offers some weird excuses about why he's not been healed so far. And then when people ask him who healed him, he doesn't even know the man's name. I think the Bible is going out of its way to show us that not only was this man desperate, he was also totally unworthy. There was nothing he did that was impressive, right? He offered excuses when he was asked, when he was healed by Jesus. He didn't even give credit to Jesus. The man was desperate and unworthy. He didn't raise his hand at an altar call. He didn't give 10% of his money away. He didn't do anything to deserve Jesus healing him. Let's just picture Jesus walking up to the scene for a moment. We know that he's just met with the woman in Samaria. He's coming back to Jerusalem. He's walking up towards the temple where all the people have gathered. And he comes upon this really horrific scene. All these people lying next to this pool. Can you imagine what that scene looked like? What it smelled like? And Jesus arrives there, and we don't see this in the text, but it's almost like he walks up there and he says, who here is in the worst shape? Who here has been here the longest? Who's got the most excuses? Who here is the most unworthy? I came for that guy. And he, I just picture him almost like tiptoeing over the other people, you know, finding the guy who'd been there for 38 years, saying, I came for you. This is a picture. This is the house of mercy. I think if the Pharisees had designed the Messiah, if they had designed who God was going to look like and be like when he arrived on the scene, I think they would have designed a Messiah who would show up in this place and ask the question, who here has been working the hardest to get out of here? I want to reward you with a blessing. Jesus doesn't do that. He looks for the one who's been there the longest, who's the most desperate, who's the most unworthy, who wouldn't even give him credit after he was healed by him. Jesus didn't come to reward the worthy. He came to rescue the unworthy. We don't need to measure up for God. We need to recognize that we don't and ask him to come and rescue us. Jesus said in his own words, 
I came to seek and to save who? The lost. He also said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Speaking of sin, let's look at verse 14 for something very interesting that Jesus said. Afterward, Jesus found him. Where did he, see, where did he find him now? He's in the temple for the first time in 38 years. He found him in the temple and said to him, See your well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Why would Jesus say that? Well, we know in other parts of the same gospel, from other parts in the same gospel, that Jesus didn't mean that sin caused the guy to be paralyzed. Because it says in other places, it doesn't really work that way. God doesn't just punish us with physical paralysis just because we've sinned. So we know that's not what he means. So what is it that he's really saying? I think what Jesus is saying here is, do you want to know what would be worse for you than being physically paralyzed by that pool? What would be worse for you is a life of sin. I think he's talking a little bit to the Pharisees here. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He's exposing, again, in their hearts, their spiritual paralysis. You could ask of this story, who's more paralyzed? Is it the man at the pool? Or is it the Pharisees in the temple? You know, by the end of the story, the man at the pool is walking around freely. Jesus set him free. But the Pharisees are still stuck. They're still paralyzed with their religiosity, thinking they're worthy. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, both kinds of paralyzed people. They were so stuck in their ways that they ended up doing the only solution they had left for him. They went to kill him. Now, what they didn't know is that by putting him on the cross, they were helping him accomplish his mission to seek and to save the lost, to bring those who are separated from God, who are outside, who are on the margins, who are not in God's presence because of sin, that's us. Jesus, in dying on the cross, was creating a way for us to get into the presence of God again. He was actually accomplishing his mission. He was coming to the whole world in all of its sin and all of its brokenness and all the ways that it had become invalid. And he was bringing us back to the place where we belong, the place with the Father forever. Now, I don't know what your life looks like. I don't know if you're sitting here um, equating yourself with the guy at the pool or those in the temple who thought they had it all together. But in both cases, Jesus came for you to heal you of your paralysis, to set you free. The only way that you can forfeit Jesus' love is to tell him, I'm good, I measure up, I'm all set. What we need to do instead is say, I'm desperate, I'm unworthy. It's not because of anything that I've done or can do for you, for you. It's because of what you can do for me. Please come to my pool of Bethesda and set me free. Will you pray that prayer with me? Let's pray right now. Jesus, please come. Come to our places of paralysis. We're desperate and we're unworthy. Forgive us, God, for wanting to do faith on our own terms, forgiving us for, for, please forgive us for trying to measure up for you. Now please come in our desperation, our unworthiness, and set us free. In Jesus' name.